Last week, I think we demonstrated, and in the weeks previous, last week especially, I think we demonstrated conclusively that the Old Testament, which we examined as closely as one 50-minute period or 45-minute period will allow, uh, contains within it both a positive and a negative tradition, tradition of the higher teachings of the positive power, which is somewhat overwhelmed in its present form by the tradition of the negative power, which was added later, therefore uh, covers more bases, so to speak. Uh, we saw that the the higher tradition, the prophetic tradition, as exemplified by the long series of prophets and holy men who appeared to the nation of Israel over a period of 1,500 years or so, eventually after the um, final editing of the Bible from the point of view of the negative power, went underground, became the Essenes, and developed what is called an esoteric, that is a secret teaching, which really is nothing other than the continuation of the prophetic tradition with the modifications necessary for going underground. And that John the Baptist and Jesus represented the bursting forth into the public eye of that prophetic tradition gone esoteric. Whereas they were reviving it publicly uh, and once again proclaiming the teachings of the true Father, which were the same as had been proclaimed by their ancestors, the prophets. Now I want to return to the New Testament and uh, take two stories from the early part of the Gospel of Matthew and comment on them from the point of view of St. Mat. The first is the birth story. Um, mostly I just want to, to draw attention to the visit of the Magi. The, of course, the story of the virgin birth of Jesus is not improbable. We know that similar stories have been told of many masters, both Buddha and Kabir, as well as a number of others. Uh, their births were definitely unusual by ordinary standards, and there is no reason to think that Jesus might not be also. It does, does not, of course, matter much. Um, it does not prove anything specially, but uh, on the other hand, there is no reason really not to believe it since we know that the traditions are fairly unanimous um, regarding a number of masters. You may be interested to know that the Quran also um, proclaims the virgin birth of Jesus, and it doesn't really have any reason to, except that apparently Muhammad believed in it and thought that it was true. Uh, Matthew tells the story, which is quite significant in lots of ways, that when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? We have seen his star in the east and are come to worship him. Now, first of all, the Y word wise men, in the original the word is magi, M-A-G-I. 
For some reason, modern editors of the Bible are very reluctant to use that word, to translate that word, or to use it without translating it. And yet it's a foreign word. It's not a Greek word. It is put into the Greek wholesale from uh, the Persian language, which is where it originates. And strictly speaking, it ought to be preserved intact. Yet modern translations, with a very few exceptions, generally including the King James, obviously also, from which I am reading, do not like to put that word in there. And the reason is that the Magi, or I suppose that one of the reasons might be, that Magi is a very specific term with some very specific connotations. They were Zoroastrians, for one thing. They were from Persia. And while they're often referred to as priests, in fact, the Magi were closer to what might be called yogis. Um, That is to say, they were masters of esoteric knowledge. They were not ritualists in the sense of priesthood of most religions. Among other things, they knew and, and studied astrology. And the star in the east that they saw, the better translation is uh, his star as it was rising. That is now considered to be the most accurate translation. In the east does not appear to be the correct meaning of the Greek. So what it means is that they saw an unusual astrological configuration, understood its significance that a master was being born and journeyed hundreds of miles westward in order to meet him, even though he was being born into a different religious tradition than their own. This, of course, is in accord with a lot of different traditions in saint Mat, uh, where people, including some modern times, where uh, learned men of one religious tradition, holy men of one religious tradition, will uh, bow down in reverence before someone of another. Uh, the magi, the word magic, of course, comes from the word magi. Magic was the the uh, under, people's understanding of what it was that the magi did. So uh, they came to came to be used eventually for any wonder-working sorcery, what is now called black magic, and so forth. In the beginning, it simply meant something like supernatural power, the kind of things that yogis can do. Now, the the Magi interest in Jesus and the way they found out about him is interesting, partly because it demonstrates um, the truth, although not necessarily the the, uh, importance in in, in an immediate way for the disciple of a large part of the esoteric tradition which the masters don't bother with much. It's true that the masters don't recommend, for example, astrology to their disciples. Uh, In fact, they emphatically don't recommend it. But that's not because they say that astrology is fake or that it's not true. No, there are two reasons. The first is that um, while it is an exact science, uh, very few practitioners can be found who really know it. And the second is that for the initiate, who is under the control of a higher power, the predictions of the stars don't necessarily prove true and therefore are misleading and a nuisance and not worth paying attention to. So they they don't recommend it for those two reasons. But they understand very well that in its essence it is a true science and that it can be uh, used in ways like the present. 
and similar to the, the fact of palmistry, which is also not recommended by the masters for similar reasons, um, in fact, identical reasons, but still, most masters do have the lotus mark on their foot and things of that sort, which indicate that palmistry is based on fact. So, the same considerations apply here. And I will skip the sections regarding Herod and just mention uh, verse 11, when they were come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented unto him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. Now two things, several things perhaps in that verse. Uh, one is that uh, there's no reason to suppose that there were just three magi. By the way, there were three gifts. And I suppose the tradition grew up pretty soon that there was one magi for each gift. But that's an assumption that is not found in the story itself. The number is never mentioned how many there were. And the second is, or another one, is that there's no indication that they were kings. That's another tradition that grew up and even became the kings of various countries. And of course, if they were magi, they were almost certainly not kings. And the third thing is that the gifts that they gave him and this is a very interesting point that is not found in most commentaries, but it is found in some. The gold and frankincense and myrrh can be understood as gifts to the baby Messiah. Or, if we realize, which happens to be a fact, that they were all three of them used in the trade of being a magi, that is, that they had their place as... Um, as part of the day-to-day functioning of what it was that a, a magus, which is the plural, I mean, excuse me, magi is the plural, magus is the singular, did, uh, then we may conclude, as at least one commentator has done, that they were giving over the tools of their trade to a higher power in more or less renouncing them, or at least uh, submerging them into what they recognized was a truer and higher thing. Anyway, they returned, and uh, and that is all that we need to worry about them. I want to pick up in chapter 4. We spent several weeks ago, we spent quite a bit of time considering the ministry of John the Baptist, the mystery of the baptism of Jesus, and the fact that that was, in fact, his initiation, and that baptism stood for was an outer symbol of the inner initiation that both John and Jesus were doing. The symbol was taken from the practices of the Essenes and was an admirable symbol for that purpose. But the reality that they were doing was comes under the heading of initiation. Next week, I will go into detail, or attempt to, as to what the evidence is uh, for that specifically, Um, there has been some very exciting evidence discovered in recent years in which the word initiation uh, is used specifically and the circumstances are such that it becomes very clear what Jesus was doing and that this is what he meant by the new birth. And we will go into that next week in connection with the third chapter of the Gospel of John when Jesus speaks of the new birth. Today I want to take up the very interesting and very important story of Jesus' temptation, which happened immediately after his initiation. 
And this is how Matthew tells it. The same story is told in different ways in Mark and Luke also. Mark tells a very brief form, just one verse. Luke gives it a slightly different twist. But I think that Matthew's version is as authentic as any. Then was Jesus led up of the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. And when he had fasted forty days and forty nights, he was afterward and hungered. And when the tempter came to him, he said, If thou be the Son of God, command that these stones be made bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Then the devil taketh him up into the holy city, and setteth him on a pinnacle of the temple, and saith unto him, If thou be the Son of God, cast thyself down. For it is written, He shall give his angels charge concerning thee, and in their hands they shall bear thee up, lest at any time thou dash thy foot against a stone. Jesus said unto him, It is written again, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. <coughs> again the devil taketh him up into an exceeding high mountain, and showeth him all the kingdoms of the world, and the glory of them. And saith unto him, All these things will I give thee, if thou wilt fall down and worship me. Then saith Jesus unto him, Get thee hence, Satan, for it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. Then the devil leaveth him, and behold, angels came and ministered unto him. And this is followed in this fourth chapter by the reference to John, who was Jesus' guru, as we have seen, uh, being cast into prison, which marked the beginning of Jesus' public ministry, so that these events that we have just read happened uh, while he was still, we may say, a disciple, and that this represents, in fact, his discipleship. Whether or not forty days and forty nights is a is a they call a formula period in the Bible. It is used often to indicate a long time. Um, it doesn't follow that it was exactly forty days and forty nights. That's the same period, you'll recall, that it rained before the flood came. And there are a number of incidents throughout the Old Testament that are said to have taken 40 days and 40 nights. So it has symbolic value. Uh, the first thing, Mark, in the parallel account, instead of saying that Jesus was led up of the Spirit into the wilderness, it says that he was driven by the Spirit into the wilderness, which is, I think, an interesting variant. That is unquestionably the older reading uh, Matthew has softened that to conform with his own understanding of what Jesus' relationship with the Spirit was. But I think that that same sense of the Master's being bound and ordered under God's orders is present more vividly in the, in the, in the driven phrasing. And the phrase to be tempted of the devil, again, is a little bit misleading. What we have here in this section is, of course, not the traditional Christian devil figure, you know, the evil guy in red tights and, and pitchfork and all that stuff. But we have a very powerful person who is, uh, in fact, Kao, and he is functioning as the king of the world, the lord of the lower regions, and there is no question that uh, he is speaking from a position of power. And what he has to offer, he is offering. Now, this whole story of the temptation is, of course, absolutely meaningless if we assume that Jesus at this point was the fully conscious 
Son of God. Uh, if he was, then no temptation would have been possible from at least insofar as we can understand these things. It may have been some level on which it was possible. Uh, obviously, from the wording, if this wording is in fact the correct wording, and this story must have come ultimately from Jesus himself, unless it was made up by others later because no one else was there, uh, the tempter referred to, Kyle referred to, uh, the title Son of God, but that could mean at this point only a consciousness of mission, what lay ahead in the future, the chosen one. We know that the just the uh, just the verse before the story began, at the time of his initiation, we heard God saying, "This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased." And we saw that the chances are very strong that the original wording of that verse was in conformity with the second Psalm, from which it quotes. This is my beloved son, this day I have begotten thee. Jesus is newborn at this point. He is indeed a son of God. He has been initiated, born again. Uh, and he is now in the, has the job of perfecting his discipleship, his meditation. He has fasted a long period, whether or not he actually went without eating anything that long, or whether this means that he spent a long time in continuous meditation during which he ate very little, which is more probably the case. It's more um, in line with what we know of what most masters have done and it's more logical. In any case, these temptations come to him at the conclusion of that period before, however, the final consummation has taken place. And it's as though just on the verge of grasping uh, the full fruit of what he had been given the negative power appears to him. Now the word Satan, which is used here, um, which Jesus uses toward the person who otherwise throughout the story is called the devil, the word Satan is a Hebrew word. It means adversary in the sense of prosecuting attorney. Like if you go to court, the person who is, consider- is concerned with casting you into prison, who is trying to prove that you're guilty, is your Satan. He's your adversary. And this is a very apt designation for Kal, as we have seen in the in our studies of the Anurag Sagar, that uh, this is the function he performs. He sets up the law, and then he shows God, you might say, that uh, we don't measure up. So therefore, we deserve to be thrown into hell, or reborn, or uh, get horrible things done to us, whatever happens. Um, the word devil is of entirely different derivation, and was applied to Satan only late. In other words, our traditional conception of the devil, which is really a, a cartoon of Kao, you know, it's a caricature. It includes, it's not inaccurate in the sense that he certainly does appear um, evil, especially to those of us who are trying to become more than he is, uh, or than what we are at present. And he can certainly do and attempt to do things that come under the heading of evil. But the reality is far more subtle than that, and it really is presented, if we can get past the word devil, then what he is doing with Jesus in this story is very much uh, d- demonstrates that reality, perhaps more fully than anything else in the Bible. So what are the three temptations? Okay, if you are the Son of God, all right, you're a spiritual person, okay, then you have power, all right, then you make these stones bread. In other words, you're hungry. Use this power for your own advantage. 
This is a relatively low-level temptation, I think. We know that Ramakrishna, when he was dying, was dying of cancer of the throat, and his disciples begged him to request the Divine Mother to whom he prayed, Kali, to heal him. And he agreed, he said that he would do it, but then he never did. And when they asked him why he didn't, he said that whenever he got within and saw her, nothing seemed to him less important than healing himself. And so he died of cancer of the throat, brought on, by the way, from talking too much because of the thousands of disciples who came to him daily. Uh, so it's very rare for masters or genuinely holy people of any degree to use their power for their own satisfaction. If they do, then they become something other than a holy person. And uh, it's an important, it's not a, perhaps, it was not perhaps a difficult temptation for Jesus to withstand, but still there it is. It comes up. And this is another thing. It came up. These temptations happen. And what they mean, in psychological terms at least, is that these thoughts came to him. Now, whether we can picture him having a face-to-face conversation with Tao, there is no uh, reason to think that this didn't happen on the inner planes. We know that Kabir had face-to-face conversations with Kao, perhaps not so different from this, at two or three places in the Anurag Saga. And we know that uh, Kao takes the form of the Master many times and will come to initiates, and if they don't see through him, and protect themselves against him by use of Simran and so forth, uh, he will suggest things to them face to face along this line. He will tempt them, in other words. Uh, the thing to remember here is that even masters of this order can be tempted. To be tempted is no disgrace. We're in excellent company. The Buddha also was tempted. And in the, in the stories told about the, about the masters, um, in Sanchi's discourse, Dance, Mind, Dance, he tells many stories of how the rishis and munis were tempted and fell, but how the masters were tempted and did not fall. Guru Gobind Singh, Guru Nanak, Kabir Sahib are all mentioned specifically by him, to whom Maya or Kal appeared and tempted them, but they did not react to that. So the thing that is important is not that the tempter never come to us, that we never are tempted. If we did not, if we were not, there would probably be something wrong. But what we do in response to that, that's what counts. And that distinguishes the truly holy people from the ones who have only developed some power. So Jesus' answer is one of the more beautiful uh, verses in the Bible. It's, of course, a quote. Every one of his answers here is a quote from the Old Testament, furthermore, from the prophetic tradition of the Old Testament, which Jesus quoted a great deal. And, in fact, the three times that he quotes here are all from the book of Deuteronomy, which, as we saw last week, was the revision of the Law of Moses from the prophetic point of view, or the commentary on it. I should say it's not a revision, but a commentary. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. And we know that that is a highly esoteric answer, a direct reference to the nam, to the word which... Jesus was at the point of fully realizing at this time. In other words, it doesn't matter if I am hungry because my true life, that which counts, that which really sustains me, I am getting 
from the Word. And that is what keeps me alive. And that finished that particular temptation. So the next one, up on the pinnacle of the temple, plays on the fact that God protects his own. Okay? And it's, it's a very subtle temptation, probably far more uh, dangerous than the first one. If thou be the Son of God, cast thyself down. For it is written, He shall give his angels charge concerning thee, and in their hands they shall bear thee up, lest at any time thou dash thy foot against a stone. Jesus said unto him, It is written again, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. Or as is perhaps better translated, although both translations are valid, Thou shalt not put the Lord thy God to the test. You shan't, shouldn't test him. Okay. Now, again, Satan is playing on a fact, on the truth. We saw in the Anurag Saga that Kal, most of Kal's statements are based on truth. They are true up to a point. They are false only in what they leave out, in what they imply, or in what, um, yeah, in what they leave out or imply. Uh, he says, God will protect you. Therefore, why don't you um, prove that? Uh, just do something so that he'll have to protect you. And, of course, what is wrong in this is that it implies a violation of trust. If Jesus had faith that God would protect him, then why should he have to prove it? And that is the meaning of putting God to the test. If we, if we do not have the kind of trust in the Master that allows us to simply let him put us in our own bad positions by himself, in other words, that we don't have to put ourselves into a bad position uh, and then see what he does, uh, then we probably don't have the kind of receptivity that will enable us to recognize the protection when we see it, although it does not follow that he won't protect us. It's the same kind of reasoning why we should not pray for shocks or tests. Um, God knows. You know, the Master knows what it is that we need, when we need it, and he will give it to us. And our job is to trust him, to take him by the hand and be led by him, not to set up the conditions so that we'll see whether he works or not. And this is a, a subtler temptation than the other, and I think that uh, definitely there are those people who start out on the path who succumb to them. Okay. Then he takes him up on a high mountain and he shows him his power. Okay, All the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them and it's implied that this is his to give. That is why I say that what we have here is not the Christian figure who is sometimes pictured uh, chained in hell in Dante, for example, and sometimes pictured as you know floating about in the air uh, whispering evil thoughts into people's ears. Although that, in a, there are aspects of both of those that are true, all right. Um, this is the king of the three worlds speaking here. And he says from the full knowledge that it's his to give, and Jesus knows that it's his to give, you can have this if you will fall down and worship me. But Jesus says, away, Satan, naming him as the adversary. For it is written, thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, in this case, obviously, meaning the positive power without a doubt, and him only shalt thou serve. And what Jesus knows and why he is able to say this is because 
uh, in the worship of the real God, of the true Father, the kingdom of the three worlds is also included. But that's again something that we take on trust. We don't have that without um, until we get there. And there are many points along the way where um, it may be more obvious that we can get everything we want by taking a lower thing. It's true that the the knowledge that the masters give us is that knowledge knowing which everything else becomes known. There are a lot of times in the course of the path when it does not appear that way to the person following it. And uh, the temptations of Kao in those instances appear very appealing. Then the devil leaveth him, and behold, angels came and ministered unto him. Whereas once the temptations were over, I think we can take this as the consummation of the meditation period, the, um, the higher experience. Angels are often used, by the way, throughout the Bible as a euphemism for God. It was not, in the Old Testament, it was, they did not like to say that God himself spoke to somebody. Uh, usually it's the angel of the Lord. And here it may mean the same thing. So this is an important story. It has many, uh, many of the inner teachings are contained in it. Interestingly, the, the thing that, that uh, Satan says to Jesus, it is written, he shall give his angels charge concerning thee, and in their hands they shall bear thee up, uh, is also from the prophetic tradition of the Old Testament, from the 91st Psalm. It's, this is the verse on the basis of which the proverb, even the devil can quote scripture, is based. And uh, it again shows his ability to, to base what he's saying on truth, but on partial truth, which does not take into consideration the, uh, the whole. So we will continue next week with our exploration of the new birth and exactly what Jesus was doing when he was initiating people.